Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday morning in Cholamoid, and... Um, I was asked by a very good friend of mine to do a talk about somebody, which ordinarily I wouldn't have done, but because I hold him in high esteem, so therefore this will be the bio that we'll do this week, uh, which is being sponsored, as I say, by one of my oldest friends, uh, Sammy Finkel, Sam Finkel, who lives in the Yerushalayim, in, uh, I guess, Rechavi, and this is because he's in, in memory of his grandmother, he sent me the this will be next week, I guess. Right after Yantif went out on 24 Tishrei. Sorry, Etel Bas, Yaakov Flegel, Eisenberg. Mm, and we're very good friends. We know such since high school, just before. And he was on a trip, a tour in Europe, in Germany, with. Uh, Professor Lyman, big historian, and he heard about somebody, and he got fascinated with him. Uh, even though it's not somebody I would feel I would have chosen, but he's a very interesting, unusual character. And because we're good friends, so I agreed to do it. Uh, and this is somebody most of you will never have heard about. His name was Haile Wexler, uh, which is a very uh, extremely unusual person. Uh, but uh, anyway, here we go. Uh, we're dealing with somebody who lived in Germany in the 1800s. Uh, not a long life either. He was about 50 or something like that when he died. Uh, and never had good health. And this is uh, is someone whose name was Elchanan, uh, uh, I think. Or Kinchus, Moshe, something like that. But in, in German, it's Heinrich. So nobody, you, you, you know, you call him highly. Now, um, here we go to a part of Jewish history not so well known when it comes to the Yekis. Um, everybody's heard of Sam Samuel Hirsch, obviously, and there are a fair number of heard of Rav Hildesheim, who I spoke about some time ago, who were the two big uh, leaders in the 1800s, I would say in the middle and second half of the 1800s. Among the Orthodox Jews, that's the one to provide a charismatic leadership. But the third one was the Würzburgerov in uh, southern Germany. This is very complicated. Listen, I can't give a whole uh, series on this. I'm just going to share with you, as I always do this, my take on this. Uh, as we, I think everybody knows, Germany was a ideological battleground in the 19th century. That's where the reform movement started, as everybody's where conservative movement started. So in other words, this is not simply assimilation, although you had that plenty also, in which people just move out of Judaism, but it knows these are movements for the redefinition of Judaism. Not Jewishness, but Judaism, the religion itself. That's what the Reform Movement means, and so forth. Now, uh, and this hit, you know, in the wake of the Haskalah, it's not the same thing as the Haskalah, but it hit in the first half of the 1800s. Now, Germany already, 
in the second half of the 1700s was getting shvach. And I'm defining that in terms of yeshivas and limanat Torah and that sort of thing. Because I think we all know that uh, in the modern era, there's only two ways that I can think of they have a strong Jewishness, for better or worse. One is the Hasidus. So if you have a Hasidish community, by definition, you got it. That's one. And the other one is the yeshivish. The others have not worked so well. Uh, they have a long, they have a long legs. Now Germany wasn't Hasidic, but in other words, they used to have a lot of uh, what we would call today yeshiv. That was part of the old model of the old Kahillas. Places you wouldn't think about Berlin, whatever you know. That's the Hamburg. You know, that's that's the way it used to be. But in the course of the 18th century, um, very slowly but surely, the Jews there, like elsewhere got into uh, economic advancement, uh, which is totally understandable. And the problem is, and th- you know, that they were faced with the challenges everybody's faced with today, everywhere. And that is, how do you combine, I'll use modern terminology, how do you combine yeshiva with college? Or, not college in those days, how do you combine yeshiva with making a living? Suppose a guy's not rich. Now let's say he's 20, 21 years old. Uh, anything yeshiva. Well, let's say he's doing well. Uh, in, a, in America, maybe it's a little different, but not really. And this guy's not going to college. So what are you going to do? So somebody might say like this, he says, well, you know, I'll get married. And I'll learn when, when the money runs out, then I'll go and find something. That's one way of doing it, right? Another person might say like this, he says, I don't have any money coming in. And so I got to make a living. And so I'll go right now into real estate. I'll go into this, go into that. <laughs> you know, whatever the particular line is, start a business. Uh, and so, it's a challenge. You know, how much is the learning part, and how much is the uh, the the parnasa part? And everybody negotiates their own deal with life. Now, uh, same thing in Europe, except in those days there wasn't such a thing as welfare or unemployment insurance or anything like that. So, really, we're on your own. And so, the average guy, even if he went to yeshiva or something like that, came a certain point in his life in which he said, you know, which way is it going? Now, if you have a future in learning, you become a rabbi or a dying or something like that. All right, but most people aren't. So then, how are you gonna how are you gonna work all that out? That is the question. Now, um, because of what I just said, so you ended up with a situation in which, little by little, the learning went down. I would say socially, although it was still there. Um, and in North Germany, for the most part, as the 18th century proceeded the learning kind of withered away. People said, you know, a few years maybe, and then it's time to get into business. And then instead of starting going into business at the age of 25, started 20. Instead of 20, started 15. You know, that kind of thing. There's a famous book on this, by the way, uh, 50 years old, 60 years old. Im Chilufei Tekufot, long ago, was written. That's the name of the book. Now, uh, who, who chronicled this? Now, um... However, in South Germany, I know most of you don't know geography, but I can only dumb it down as much as I can. In North Germany, this was kind of the case. In South Germany, this was not the case. There, since South Germany is the old Ashkenaz, you know what I mean? This goes back to Rashi Tosa's time, um, and uh, on both sides of the Rhine River. So uh, this is, you know, literally, that's where Rashi went to Yeshiva, and mines and worms and those kind of places. And across the river, on the German side, is Bavaria. And so these areas are old Jewish stuff. 
So as a result, um, yeshivaism, if I can use that term, continued to flourish um, into the 1800s. Even though it was the Napoleonic Wars and the modernity and the governments, which are really uh, pretty anti-Semitic, especially the Bavarian government was very, very Catholic, anti-Semitic, very much so. Uh, in spite of all this kind of stuff, you still had yeshivism. Now, it's not Litvish yeshivas, it's Yekish yeshivas. It's their own thing. Now, it's not Yekis like Hirsch, because that's a later invention. I'm talking about it's the old, old way in which people people spoke Yiddish. They would, Chasper Khalil used to speak German. German Yiddish, but no, it's Chasper used to speak German. And they had all the yeshivish type attitudes and this sort of thing. And they're really, you had smaller communities, more anti Semitism. Uh, the uh, Parnassus was viewed as from a more yeshivish perspective, let's put it that way. And uh, anyway, what can I tell you? Into the early 1800s, there still continued what I would still call, you know, the local yeshivism. Now it's every yeshivish type culture uh, has its own characteristics. This is a subject that's a fascinating. Uh, the Lithuanian yeshiva is the one you and I are familiar with. It's not the only type. I have on occasion spoken to the Hungarian Shiva, which kind of came and went, but in other words, for a hundred years or so, it had a real run, which was run on different lines. Um, Sephardic yeshivas, I mean like in the Balkans, those places had their, you know, frameworks. Obviously, the Taimani yeshivas, if you can imagine a place like Yemen, had their frameworks. I'm just trying to explain to you that yeshiva is one model, even though most of the people listening to this podcast are familiar with a grand total one model. Although today, the Hasidic have their own yeshivas with their own, uh, you know, uh, frameworks, the Lubavitch do, and so forth. They're not identical with the regular yeshivas, although obviously the main emphasis is Gemar, 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 but that ain't all. And so in Germany, they had their own way uh, and their own type of lambdas. And it's a very interesting subject uh, over the centuries. I mean, in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, into the 1800s, in their own style. Now, because we're Lithuanian-centric in the Yeshiva world, so these are not so well-known. Uh, and people like Rabbi Hamburger and others, or Hamburger, Hamburger, you know, trying to revive knowledge of the Germanic Yeshivish culture. Nothing wrong with it, it's 100% justified. So our hero today, right, our hero, uh, uh, Wexler, uh, Elchanan Wexler, uh, Pinchas uh, Moshe Chaim, uh, is, is, is a product, sort of, of that culture. Now, he's born right after that culture kind of collapsed. Because what happened was that if you went in 1800, even 1810, 1820, and you went to Bavaria, which is the southern part of Germany, you went to places like uh, uh, Firth and uh, Würzburg and, and, and smaller towns, really communities with 20, 30, 40, 50 families, it was mamish like it used to be once upon a time, that the size of the community almost doesn't matter because they might have a local charismatic rub who just makes a yeshiva. Here, yeshiva is, un- is understood more in a personal sense rather than an institutional sense, although it could possibly have an institutional identity. And by that I mean, somebody's a rub. I spoke about the Carbon Sano the other day, for example. He's having a small town, you know, in the Rhine area. Uh, he personally was a giant Talmud and so he had like a stickle yeshiva, you know, he had a couple guys learning with him. What does yeshiva mean? You have somebody, and you have five guys, ten guys, maybe a little more, I don't know, I don't know. And you learn every day. And you have some kind of a seder, meaning you have someone got a system, you do the yeshiva shemesechtas, you do the moed, whatever the particular way is. 
and maybe you have another person who gives a, a lower share, you give a higher share. Yeah, it's, it's all whatever you want. It's very organic. And there was a lot of these little yeshivas in Bavaria, in South Germany. Uh, however, uh, this ran into the buzz saw in the 1820s of several different things. One of them was uh, the Rise of Reform Movement, which uh, in South Germany uh, developed as anti-yeshivas because they saw the yeshivas as the bulwark of the old order, which was true, and therefore they kind of like worked to dismantle and destroy the yeshivas by getting the government to do that for them, and they did succeed. This is precisely what turned the Orthodox so white-hot, uh, angry at the reform that they haven't stopped till today. Till today, in the year 2020. You know, the Mamish came and, and uh, beyond Rama, they, they destroyed all these Torah institutions. So they made the reform movement like poison. You get it? And uh, indeed, in South Germany, uh, in those kind of places, the Orthodox were like, you know, viewed the reform as, as poison. Uh, and Hirsch, when he became the rabbi in, later in his life in Frankfurt, which is not, which is nearby, not exactly there, was completely uh, giving eloquent expression to this business. You guys destroyed the yeshivas, you closed the mikvahs, you stopped the faders, tried to stop people from wearing scissors, you uh, wouldn't allow uh, you know people to buy a little of an asterisk, you know, all, all kind of crazy things that the reformers were into. But the most effective of what the reform did was to arrange one way or another to get the important yeshivas uh, closed down. And the two uh, biggies, well, let's put it this way. The most important yeshiva in Bavaria was in Firth. And uh, that was already an institution. It wasn't a, a personal guy. That was like, a, a, that had been there for many, many centuries. And uh, that's that book, that three-volume book by Rabbi Hamburger, Yeshiva Dolorama, which is a very good book. He did a lot of homework on that. Uh, and, so that was like a Volusian-type place. I'm, I, I'm not exaggerating way back when, but it was just closed down. The same way Volusian was closed down under somewhat similar circumstances in the 1890s. It's just very interesting. That's number one. And then, um, however, and it's a very complicated story. I'm not going to go into it because it'll take us 10 hours. But other yeshivas sort of like uh, had opened up, sort of. Some of them were, were tiny, and so they kind of were under the radar. And uh, they lasted into the 1800s. Uh, in very small uh, frameworks, you know, five guys, ten guys, something like that. People don't know too much about this. And then there was in Würzburg, Würzburg uh, which was like a branch, sort of, of Alvin Bing, you know, of the other one, of the big one in Firth. And that one was around for a little bit longer. And uh, so our hero, uh, right, Wilhannon uh, Wexler, Harry Wexler, his father was like one of the last big Talmudim of the first yeshiva, you know, and uh, and he became rabbi of a small community, not far from first Schwabach. Nobody's ever heard of it. And uh, these people who had smicha from those yeshivas tried. This is very unhershian when I'm talking about it here. This is old school. They tried to come a rov in a small town and open some sort of yeshiva framework, some kind of yeshiva framework, some kind of chinuch type framework, because that's the main topic of a rov. That's what they sought. Uh, you know, there's an obbasin side of it, and there might be a get or something like that, no kashras, for sure. But at the same time, the Iker thing should be to have some kind of a chinuch framework. Um, now, uh, these guys tried all through the 1800s, some with more success, some with less success, to have what I would consider like a, continue a yeshiva-type framework 
in some fashion or another, because the trouble was that the government over there in Bavaria, uh, it was anti, very anti-Semitic and very anti-Orthodox, sort of, meaning they didn't want, uh, I'll give you a good example. Right now is the corona going on. And so the the Hasidim and all this are very much disliked in the media. You guys don't pay attention to the to, to, to the restrictions. You have to turn off. And so it was up to the governor of New York, and he closed down all the Hasidic places. It was up to him. It was up to the governor of New Jersey. It's not up to him, but if they would. And you hear what they're coming from. So just multiply that a hundred times, then you see the Bavarian government. Anybody's too from or from me looks like he's uh, you know not German, and uh, they don't like it. So the government in Bavaria was very pro-reform, shall we say, unless they were cleverly lobbied by the from, which sometimes was able and usually not. This is just the interesting history of uh, of Jewish life in Bavaria in the 1800s. It's the way it was. And so as a result, um, the Orthodox had to be very nimble, shall I say. And... Um, Therefore, what happened was, after the yeshivas closed down, they had these little yeshiva uh, frameworks. So, uh, you know, they had to worry about what's going to, you know, that they shouldn't be closed down either. Now, in the case, there were a few exceptions to this, and it was a close call. So, Würzburg itself, which is not a small town, uh, Würzburg itself, these are all cities in Bavaria, um, was, that's the famous Würzburger Rob, Bamberger. He was a Talmud from that yeshiva that I said before. But um, he was able, l- let me put it this way. There was a certain family of court Jews. Court Jews, Hofjuden, is a phenomenon you have for the last couple hundred years, in which in the German states, and remember, Germany was not a single country until the 20th century. It became a, a federation of states under Bismarck in 1870. The German Empire, as they called it, under the Kaiser, but it was a, of semi-independent states, and it didn't become an organic single country till Hitler, actually. Uh, but any, And even today it's a federal republic, by the way. The Bundesrepublik. Even today it's a federal republic. So, um, where I'm going with this is that, uh, how should I put it over here? In, in Germany, the princes, the rulers, usually hated the Jews. However, they were pragmatic because they were mercantilist. They were thinking of their own uh, uh, bottom dollar and, uh, you know, their own pocket. And already Jews who lived under all kinds of circumstances of, of, of uh, discrimination learned to, like water, you know, to go wherever it is a hole. And uh, if they could find a way to make themselves of use to the king, the ruler, the prince, or something like that, then, uh, then, the, then they could get exceptional treatment from them. This is called the court Jew. It means the Jew at the royal court, or the court of the duke, or the baron, or the prince, or something like that. And uh, you had, I mean, I, I've spoken about one or two of these types for uh, Oppenheimer, Wertheimer, whatever. I think I, 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 I spoke about that at length on the lecture series I did this past summer about Jews in war. It's probably in my YouTube uh, channel. But anyhow, um, so a court Jew was a guy who knew how to make money through government contracts and make you know providing things that nobody else could provide for the ruler of the government. And these guys, therefore, would always gain exceptional treatment for themselves, like Yosel Brosheim. So no, a Jew's not allowed to live here, but this guy can. A Jew's not allowed to travel in this, in this area, but this guy can. A Jew's not allowed to build himself a big house, but this guy can, because the rule to make an exception, you get it? 
So the core Jew was a rich, um, always a chayecha tulin chomenega, because if you lose the favor of the ruler, they cut your throat. But you had to learn how to, uh, you know, do this. Army contracts are usually a, a big source of income. And you'd, uh, how should I put it? And when possible, they would try to get not only exceptional uh, betterment for themselves, but maybe for fellow Jews. You get it? Maybe for fellow Jews. So if you're talking about the 1500s, the 1600s, 1700s, that usually was a good thing because everybody was from. So if so, let's put it this way. I know all these politicians and big shots. Uh, I got special privileges for myself and maybe for my kids. Now, if I have any opportunity... I try to get the Jewish community. They're allowed to rebuild a synagogue, maybe a bigger cemetery, maybe Jews may a slightly uh, easier on the taxes. You know, try to help out. You get it? Try to help out. Uh, when you get to the 1800s, it's not so pushish. Because the rich Jew, uh, this is especially true in Russia, by that time, they themselves became unfrom. And so he'll try to help the Jewish community by reforming it or changing it. You get my point? In his mind, he's trying to help the Jewish community but he's trying to help Jewish community by moving them to the left. Okay? This is the problem with the 19th century. But on the other hand, there were still a few guys that weren't like that and were still for the old school, for whatever reason. And when they tried to use their uh, influence with the government here and there, uh, it wasn't to move the community to the left, but the other way around, to keep it from. I spoke with the Lehrin brothers the other day, a little while ago, who were of that sort. Because they were st- they, they were uh, rich and they, they knew money very well, banking. But you know they're very from far fromt, and therefore they tr- used their influence, which they did have as a result of their contacts, to try to keep things orthodox. Uh, there weren't many lulus, but there were some, and it's always not push it. You know sometimes the rich guy himself means well, but he doesn't realize he's moving things in the wrong direction. This is always the problem with Montefiore, by the way. He always meant well, always meant well, but he wasn't. As, he wasn't a super expert in Yiddishkeit. Sometimes he tried to move things to the left. It's very complicated. Uh, now, in Bavaria, the court Jew who, who was from was Rosenbaum. Uh, it was a, such a family, Rosenbaum. And uh, in other words, it was a from guy, went to Yeshiva and all the rest of it. Then he went into business. He obviously happened to be uh, a genius as these guys, n- native talent for w- what you and I today would call money managing investments. You understand? Uh, which is what the king and the prince and the ruler is always looking for. Everybody wants a good stockbroker. Everybody wants a good money manager. You know, you take my money, I give you ten dollars, you turn it into twenty. What else is new? And uh, since he was able to deliver, so he won the favor even of the anti-Semitic kings and the princes and all that stuff. And Rosenbaum, in his particular case, uh, Mendel Rosenbaum, uh, tried to keep things from. That was unusual. Uh, he was in Würzburg, but then in the 1819, there was a wave of anti-Semitic riots. And I might have to talk today about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitic riots in uh, South Germany. It's just what happens. Uh, it's a, too complicated to explain. It's in the wake of the reaction following the Napoleonic Wars. And, uh, I mean, there were riots. That is to say like this. It's a pogrom. They went in a Jewish neighborhood, including college students, and they killed Jews. And they smashed their property in stores. It was a, uh, it was like one percent of Kristallnacht. It wasn't Kristallnacht. There's one percent or two percent of Kristallnacht, but that's pretty bad too. Now, in the 19th century, it was a different Germany. The governments of it is was not Hitler. 
This was old-fashioned Christian anti-Semitism, which is a very important distinction for our hero today, extremely important. But uh, And in the old-fashioned uh, anti-Semitism, especially the Catholic one, they don't like pogroms. Isn't that interesting? The government doesn't like disorder. And uh, the, the army suppressed it. Okay, So the Jews were saved by the, by the government, by the army. But it wasn't a pleasant experience. And in the course of the riots in Würzburg, which had an important Jewish community, so this core Jew, Rosenbaum, he left town with his family and went nearby to another town, a, a little village nearby. There, because he had money, he was able to buy a big shetach of karka and set up like his own little private Jewish community, Sale it was called, and uh, uh, right near uh, Würzburg. And this became his headquarters. And because he was rich and powerful and all the rest of it, so he turned it into a Jewish community, built a mikvah, and he built a, a house for a little yeshiva, and a little synagogue, and all that kind of stuff. And that became like his own little bubble. So whereas the rest of Germany is going to reform, but there it's not. And uh, he even hired a guy to give shiurim. Basically, this was a countercultural phenomenon. Because things in Germany, especially in that part of the world, generally were moving to the left slowly or, or, or more quickly. And here it's not. So our hero today is from that family. Uh, now his father, Robert Metzler, was uh, a big student of the of the old yeshiva and a real frummy. And uh, when the yeshiva fell apart or was destroyed by the reform, so he eventually landed a job in this small community. He tried out for a lot of other communities, but the reform always killed it. Uh, the Bavarian government considered himself a mashogana fruma. That we have the evidence, you know. I mean, this is in the in the records, two from. And uh, so just give you an idea of what kind of family our hero, which is Elkanah, grew up in. Now, um, he was born in 1843. That's after the yeshivas have fallen apart, but were replaced by these tiny little schools and yeshivas. Now, in the ca- now again, this little bubble that I described, Sale, is only a few miles away from, from Würzburg. And uh, that means that you had this uh, very wealthy guy uh, who had very good government connections, Who's a frummy, which is unusual. Usually, the one, the one that got rich, they, they, they became unfrum. And uh, he was close with the person who became the Würzburger Rav, known as Yitzhak Dov Bamberger, who was again was a student from that yeshiva, just like Wexler was, and uh, also a real frummy. Now, these guys didn't go to college. I want to be clear about this, right? This is not the Hirsch model or the Hildesheimer model at all. That's why I said the third three types. There's a Hirsch, a Hildesheimer, then there's this. These people didn't go to college. On the other hand, they weren't stupid. And so they realized that if they won't have any hashpah on the youth and the younger generation growing up, they've got to learn the German language. They've got to pick up, you know, uh, what shall I say, nimusin. they got to modernize to some degree, not because they want to, but so that they'll have some relevance to the youth and be able to be mashpah them in the right direction. It's very interesting, you understand? And uh, in Würzburg itself, for example, there was a big clash in the 1830s, early 1840s, over the direction of the community. And now listen very closely. Here, the reform made a big push that the government should make it, that the community should go reform. Because this guy, Rosenbaum, was rich, and probably he was like the Lehrin brothers. Uh, it was very, very tricky, but he was able to swing things in a way that the community voted for an Orthodox guy to be the rabbi, 
and to remain orthodox while being very ginger and very tolerant towards the reform. You get what I'm saying? Notice they had to bend it like a twist, like a pretzel, and play politics, but they won the game in that the Kehillah remained orthodox, okay? And the rabbi was orthodox, but not in a way that's completely angled by anybody because then that would give the reform an excuse to say, see, they're being intolerant and they're being, uh, you know, like a, like, like a you know, reactionary and so on and so forth. Now, Demis says the Orthodox were intolerant reactionary, but they, but they realized that they're living in, in 19th century and they can't practice what they'd like to practice. So they had to fake it and be, you know, uh, as liberal as circumstances required. And his candidate that he stepped in after a lot of politics back and forth, it's a whole mice by itself, was Yitzhak Dov Bamberger, who became the Wurzburger Rav. So Wurzburger was a place in which the Kehillah uh, remained Orthodox, although, uh, you know, if the Reform wanted to, they could make their own thing and nobody gave them any trouble. Y y you understand what I'm saying? So uh, it's the reverse of the Hirsch situation in which the Kehillah broke into two parts. It's that there remained one uh, united Jewish community, um, except that the left wing was reformed. So it's a kind of uh, the old Jewish model that I've spoken about many times, which is very important in our story today, that the ideal, as far as the Rabbanu Shalom is concerned, the ideal is the, is the united Jewish community, okay? With the from and the non-from all in one uh, um, kehela, provided that the, that the, that the uh, top dog, the, 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 the official leadership, is committed to Orthodox Judaism, Okay? So when we talk about the famous person, the Würzburger Rav, you have to understand, he had a very difficult time, which he was able to do over his career, that, you know, pe there are plenty of people in the community that are not from, and some people are anti-from, and all the rest of it. They are your constituents, and you've got to be of service to them, and you've got to smile, and all the rest of it. Uh, this is the price of keeping the situation as described, it, that the, that the community itself still remains officially from with the Kashras, and the Gittin and, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and they, this was successful in the long run. I don't think this is so well known. Uh, uh, but Wurzburg became there for a very interesting place because the community had gone from, no question about it, but over the course of time, the, 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 the synagogue was Orthodox. And I think in the beginning, the Reform made their own, but then it fell apart, as often happens. And although there were many, many people, I'm sure Rove, that were not from, uh, down to Hitler's time, they uh, were okay with the community being um, the Orthodox, uh, the the official uh, you know organs of the community. Uh, this is this is a certain mentality which is extremely interesting. I remember Hildesheimer, who I spoke about before, had the seminary, and uh, they turned out Orthodox rabbis. And you think it only be for Orthodox Kehillo, but there was once. <laughs> a community that wrote to Hildesheimer, we want you to send us a candidate to try for the rabbi. And he said, nobody in your community, Shabbat Shabbos, nobody. Why do you want, <laughs> why do you want Orthodox rabbi? I'm, I'll send you. Why do you want Orthodox rabbi? And they said, <laughs> the passengers can be drunk, but the coachman must be sober. <laughs> you get it? <laughs> the passengers can be drunk. The driver has to be sober. That's the old-fashioned way, which is very from. You get it? Which is, the rabbi should be from. You know, what I do is one thing, but the rabbi should be from. It's very interesting. So this is the era that grew up, 
And uh, the Würzburger Rav, who is a real frummy, and he grew up just speaking Yiddish, and, you know, totally rejecting of Limurich, but he realized he can't be like that, and so he picked up whatever was necessary to keep the thing going. And uh, I think I mentioned before, it's a famous story that at one point, who was it? They say uh, uh, Zonnefeld, uh, Chaim Zonnefeld, who was very young when he moved to Yerushalayim and came to Europe to collect money for Yerushalayim, something like that. And uh, it's very famous that he stopped in Würzburg and he saw the Würzburg rub dressed like a reform rabbi, meaning, you know, with a, with a beretta and a rabbi's, uh, you know, uniform. You know what I mean? You, you know what I'm talking about, like the robes and all the rest of it. And it looked very unformed. And after it was all over, but he didn't say anything. And uh, it's a very famous story. And after the show was over, so the Würzburg rub, who was a gone and a tzaddik, came over to him and he said, listen, I got to wear this stuff. This is the price of doing business around here. In order that the, because by the reform and the non from, if a rabbi doesn't dress in the whole outfit, they'll be like enraged. And Chaim Zanavel said, I knew if you did it, there's a reason. I know who you are. If you did it, I know there's a reason. So I would never question what you did, even though it's a little strange. But I realize Germany is a special situation. And this is all part of the world in which our hero grew up because. Uh, he was born, as I say, born in the 1840s and early 1840s. These are the peak years of the um, of the, the the process that I'm describing, when the Reform and the Orthodox were fighting. A lot of places in Bavaria, the Reform won a lot. Uh, he was in one place where they didn't. The, if he's born in 1840s, he's growing up in the 1850s and 60s. These are the years of these fights. He himself came from a very firm family. I told you something. His father was the rabbi in Shvaba. His father was from the yeshiva and the old generation where they were very anti-modernity and everything goes along with that. But, as I said before, they learned, I better brush up on my German and I better learn enough stuff to impress the modernisha. An example, the type of person I'm talking about would be like this. Suppose somebody had a rabbi somewhere today. Today. Uh, you can have two types. And let's say you have a modern crowd. So there are two ways of doing it. One is the rabbi could go to college, uh, especially if you get a graduate school education. So he'll come out and he'll be able to uh, give sermons and classes and, you know, uh, uh, and speak with a good English, of course, and make the appropriate cultural references. And, you know, he can talk about the best TV shows and the movies and he'll, he'll gain a, uh, and I'm talking about somebody who does a shame shemayim. And he'll, he'll use all that baseball and football and so forth and he'll do that for the purposes of winning over the Balabatim in his community for from causes. That's one way. And people say, oh, the guy's got a master, he's got a PhD, you know, he went to Harvard, you know. And that that that, that matters, and that makes the uh, the lay people, the Balabatim, uh, give them more respect. That's one model. Um, another model is like this. A guy goes straight to Yeshiva, for example, went only to Lakewood, uh, you know, I'm just making some or only learned in Israel. So he wants to be a successful rabbi in America or somewhere else like that. And, uh, or wherever. And, you know, in the world of the Balabatim, it's not the same thing as the world of the Yeshiva. Not everywhere is a B'nai Brock, you know. And he said like this, because I'm only successful, I'm going to learn a good English or a good French or whatever it is uh, on my own. And, uh, you know, I'll read the paper every day and I'll listen to the radio. I don't know, whatever they're going to do. And you pick up enough um, what's the right word? Enough uh, a culture to have a patina of uh, 
of being a uh, educating culture person, even though you aren't. And uh, but enough to satisfy the the lady, you know what I'm So the guy I'm talking about will make it his business to become a bucky in baseball and football, even though that's not who he really was, or I don't know something like that. And he'll listen to other speakers to learn how to speak uh, good English, right? So even though he never went to college, but it's good enough. <laughs> you know what I'm It's good enough. Because the truth of the matter is, most Balabatim don't do much anyway. You know, most of them are not uh, have a graduate school education, usually. But whenever it is, uh, you know, not many of them are going to be PhDs in English literature or history or something of that nature. So that's who uh, Wurzburger was in a certain whole style, and, and the father of our hero, Ram Wexler. Now, when he grew up, now to get down to business, when he, I, I just can't help it. If you, without the, the context, it doesn't mean anything. Now, he lived in the middle 1800s. Uh, he, was, he was a very unusual person only because he wrote about himself. Most of us don't write about ourselves, and when we write about ourselves, we're not self-revelatory, correct? If I ask you, tell me about yourself, about your family, unless you're an idiot, you want to leave stuff out. <laughs> now, him, not so much. Here's a person that grew up from, um, from this family. Uh, I forget how it works, but, you know, he was, he, his, I think uh, he was, uh, his grandfather was this court Jew, Rosenbaum, and, uh, you know, because the father married into the family, and this Rosenbaum, a lot of people married into these families, including in Baltimore, Maryland, one of the founders of the Sheriff's Israel, the old German show, uh, people don't know. And um, what shall I say? He grows up in the closest you can get to yeshiva environment in the middle 19th century in Germany because of who his father was and who his uncle is and his grandfather and so forth. And therefore, he does not get a regular German Yekish education which would be a public school of some sort or another and a good high school, all the rest of it. But on the contrary, because of his unique circumstances, so uh, his father learns with him, Neon Belilah, when he's a little kid, and then he goes to the school uh, of his grandfather in that little town, that little bubble that I was talking about outside Würzburg and Sale. Now, he had very bad health. Uh, and this must have, you know, look, bad health is, is no joke. And this is the 19th century. You know, they didn't have any cures for TB, and he had TB all his life. That's why he died young. And you can just imagine what that does, You're coughing and this and that and the other. And uh, But on the other hand, he comes up in a very from environment. Uh, eventually, um, he goes... So, so, so what I'm trying to say is, this is a youth spent in these very small yeshivas of 5, 10 guys. Okay? It's just interesting. And I mean from the age of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And... Uh, so is he learning Limuri Chol in the Yeshiva way? A little here, a little there, not really. So it's very unusual I'm describing. A Jew in the middle of the 19th century living in Germany as if it wasn't the 19th, as if it was not the 19th century. You know, not getting a secular education, really. Uh, just, you know, here and there. And you see from his writing later that he did pick up what we call Limuri Chol, even through the classics, which is interesting. But he's primarily someone who's in, you know, yeshivish. And uh, he learned with the, the Würzburger Rub. Now, all these guys are related, you know, because these families all married each other. How many real from families were there? You get what I'm saying? There weren't that many really, really, really from families, and so they all married each other. And uh, David Svi Hoffman, as we'll see, married a cousin. So um, he learns over there. And eventually he goes to regular yeshiva in Pressburg. This is the time of the Ksav Sofer. I'm sorry, the Ksav Sofer. Uh, so, and learned it for three years. So in other words, 
he went to a what you would now call a regular shiva, at least for three years. So by the time mm, he's 1840s, so by the time he gets 1860s, this is someone who's had a full equivalent of a yeshivish education, which is extremely unusual. Now, uh, let me say something more than that. I said before they're very from. Uh, this is just very interesting. Define the word from. Um, you can say it like this. Well, from means they're you know you're very uh, uh, punctilious in your observance of religious uh, rituals, right? Medactic but is all the rest of it. That's true. What's 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 another definition of from? Do you have a relationship with God? Let's put it this way: Are you a breast lover? <laughs> Which he was. Now he wasn't a breast lover, chassid, but you know what I'm saying. God is a constant presence with him because his, these people that I'm talking about were tzaddikim. You know the Wurzburger of all the rest of it. You really felt the presence of the Rabbanishlam among you. Now it sounds like I'm making a, a cliche, but I don't mean it over here. I don't mean it that way. He really felt it like that, and he had a religious personality that was his natia, because his upbringing. I can just imagine who his mother was. You know, these are very pious people, and um, they're not modern at all. And therefore, God is a constant presence. So, if God is a constant presence, then you're talking to him all the time. Uh, I'm not being fun. I'm being very serious. And um, one of the things you're going to ask God is, you know, why do I, how come everybody else is healthy? I got TB, you know? Um, and you can either come out with that and say, God doesn't like me, or else you can, you can darshan it differently. You can say, you know, God has chosen me for Nisayan, um, and uh, every one of us has our own Nisayanas. And if I'm able to uh, uh, successfully withstand these nisyonas of bad health, which is a terrible nisyon, um, then I will emerge a better person for it. Now, uh, this is so basically, well, Kim Nisayas Avraham, you know, the famous interpretation of the Chazal, even that it's not a nisyon in the sense of testing because God knew what Abraham would do, but nisyon to make him better, to, to fly him like a flag. And that's really how our young hero viewed his life that, you know, he was chosen uh, to be a special person. And like, you know, like Nisiyonis, like I'm a Vino, sort of. And, uh, and it's taka hard. And therefore, a person like this says, I guess, I'm not I'm an average person. I'm somebody who stands special with their Baruch Shalom. The way he's treated my life and all the rest of it is, you know, I'm obviously meant for, 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 for something. So that's a very religious way of looking at things. And, uh, you know, if somebody, if I had a friend, me, me, myself, and I, and you had a friend, and he talked like this, we would be uncomfortable around him, most likely. Now, it may be true what he's saying, and I, again, I, I have to keep saying that I'm speaking seriously today. I'm not speaking in a cynical vein at all, I'm talking about today. But uh, it's not the average guy, okay? You know, your friend and mine, you and I don't talk this way, especially with our friends. We don't say, I think God has chosen me for this, that, and the other. Maybe with your spouse, depending on how spiritual you are i'm again i keep repeating i'm i'm not being cynical in any of this i'm speaking seriously today um but in his case you know this is how he uh, developed and uh <laughs> and he even says uh the, and and he feels he's chosen by god uh because of the circumstance of his life and he even throws in in his own writings that uh listen you know he was a young teenager and uh, he tried, and he's real from, and he tried 
to withstand the nisyonis of every teenager, which is girls. Uh, which is, you know, if you're normal, that's, nor- that, that's normal. Uh, I spoke a couple weeks ago about Ralph Cook. Well, Cook, when he was real young, in Eastern Europe, you know, in Latvia, uh, you know, uh, his head was covered with sores because he used to hit himself every time he looked at a girl to try to keep him from doing that. Uh, which means, I say it, you know, he was covered with, uh, with, with, with black marks because he hit himself. This is how people were, if they took it seriously, this idea of, of not to look at girls and not to do it. But if you're normal, it's going to be in science. So uh, uh, he says like this, you know, and, and by the way, he was tall, dark, and handsome, but sick. And he says that, you know, he never looked at a girl except one, this is what he writes. He says, but only one girl, and she captivated him, and then he was real afraid he's looking at girls, and he tried to leave town, and he went somewhere else, not to think about her, but he couldn't get off her mind, which I can, which you and I can totally understand. I'll say it again. It's not, what I'm describing is not abnormal to the teenager. It's abnormal. It's, it's in the science, which is why in the Chazal's time, they always say, and in our ancestors' time, they say, every guy should get married at 13. <laughs> That's, that, you know, that is the, uh, if the Gemara says that, that means that they're acknowledging that this is a normal problem. Uh, now, watch this. And, you know, and I'm sure he was a, just imagine a guy like this, 13, 14, 15, 16, on Yom Kippur. What he thinks, oh, I was thinking of the girl, and this and that, and the other. He's always, basically, he got obsessed with this girl. And then, um, and then, when the time came for him to get married in late teens, this is a very from environment, so, not, so the parents make the shidduch. They, they make, Without knowing anything, they they were shot at him with this girl. Turned out to be a relative. You, you get what I'm saying? The girl he was crazy over, but he was always fighting himself because he's thinking about her. That turned out to be his wife. <laughs> so then he said, "I guess God is definitely looking out for me." It's a it's a funny story. Okay, now there's nothing wrong with what I just said. There's nothing, uh, you know, uh, evil or whatever. It's 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 a circumstance. So here's somebody, and by the way, they had 14 kids. Uh, many died, but you know, the, and they and and uh, and they were deeply in love, uh, and he never looked at another woman, and so on and so forth. They really, really didn't. And so, uh, what do you do for a living? Now, a guy like I'm describing, first of all, the health, and second of all, the learning, it's not going to be very successful business or something like this. And so, here's someone at the age of 20. I think he probably got married around then. I don't know exactly, and he spent the next 30 years of his life because he died around 50 or 51. So, uh, his life in Chinuch. What does Chinuch mean? Uh, again, they had these tiny little yeshivas. Uh, the Würzburger Rav, eventually, who was a very practical person because circumstances compelled him to be. Uh, Würzburger was a very, very interesting town. I, mean, I, I could go on and on about this. And uh, the Neuburgers from Baltimore, from Würzburg, uh, from Würzburg. And uh, they had a university there. It says he went to university town, and Jewish kids came from all over the place to learn in the university over there. And the Versailles Rabbin knew this very well. And in the university, uh, like the Babish will tell you, the university could be a place of danger, could also be a place of Kiruv. And so um, the Versailles uh worked very hard to try to turn what you and I today would call Kiruv operations for the university students with a certain amount of success. This is uh, not such a well-known uh, parsha. He also was a very practical person. He was the rabbi, not only in Würzburg, but also of the district. And so he said, what we need more than anything else, if it was up to me, I would have a yeshiva gadol. Since it's not possible, in the circumstance here in Germany, he made a teacher's seminary. 
that he could get government permission for. You can't have a yeshiva over there without a government license. It's it's not what you think. The the, the government in, in Germany believed in a police state. I don't mean police state like Hitler, but police state in the German Central European sense. The government regulates every little thing. Look at the public in America now in Israel going crazy with the Corona, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know directives, because uh, we in America and in Israel are not used to a police state so much, in which the government regulates everything. And it's really interesting. Somebody wrote a book when the, once the Corona is all over, about how this country. I'm talking about America now, which doesn't have this uh, uh, history of uh, overregulation, but rather the other way around, is reacting uh, negatively to the necessary uh, extreme regulations required by the corona. And you see it's not working, especially in the front communities. It's a very interesting parsha. But in Germany, they've always had it like that. And so he couldn't get a license to start a yeshiva. So he had like a little group of guys he learned which which was a de facto yeshiva, and our hero learned there and maybe talked there a little bit. But the Wurzburger eventually made a uh, teacher seminary that he could get permission for. And uh, that way, you'd give young Jews who wish to a professional career as a laborer, as a teacher, which means in these small communities in Bavaria, I knew one or two in Baltimore, they moved from Germany, they learned there, Mr. Flum, for example, uh, where... Uh, you went there. It's not a high-level yeshiva type of education, but it's a sound, um, basic education. I'll use a word I shouldn't use. It's a kids' shochan education, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, because because basically, you'd be a teacher in a local Jewish school in these small communities. They don't need the kitzos and the nesivas. You understand? They need komishah rashi as a kids' shochan and some mishnayos. I'm very serious. You're saying that that that's what it is, and maybe for a more advanced level, it's it's a, it's a high yadam. This is how the reality was in, the, in that part of the world, and uh, the seminary, the teacher seminary in Würzburg was considered very high, a level by the government down to Hitler's time, and they graduated hundreds and hundreds of students. It's a whole little parsha by itself. Uh, see, this is the world in which our hero is learning. Uh, outside of Würzburg, there were little small institutions like a prep for the teacher seminary. Make a long story short, he taught in a lot of these kind of little frameworks. Uh, now, he was a big time Chacham, and he was offered a rabbinical position. It never worked out. Notice he was offered to be a rabbi here and a rabbi there. Never worked out. But uh, a Talmud Chacham he was. But also, at the same time, he was, I, I would say, to be a very spiritual and modest type of guy. So he wasn't a careerist looking for this sort of thing. And... Uh, I think it was up to him. His great uh, ambition in life was to become like the head of a of one of these little institutions, like a teacher's college or something like that, which never quite worked out. Now, um, so this is how he spent his mature years. Now, if he's born in 1863, so, uh, 1843, that would mean the late 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. That's the year, and he died in the early 90s. So the, the late 60s, the 70s, and the 80s in Bavaria and in Germany. Now, the time here makes a lot of difference because that means he lived through, um, what, what shall I say, uh, tempestuous times. These are the years of the formation of Germany, the German Empire, and of the Yeki, of the Hersheyan, right? That's when these things were formed. Uh, Germany was a collection of states. I think it was 37, 38 states after Napoleon time, what they called the German Confederation. You understand what I'm saying? What you see today, one country, Germany, is really a bunch of small uh, states some larger, some smaller. 
the largest was Prussia, the second largest was Bavaria, and then they had the Kingdom of Saxony, the Grand Duchy of Baden, and so forth and so on, right? Uh, Frankfurt was an independent little state of its own. Uh, Hamburg, I think, was an independent state of its own. That's what Germany was. So if you ever go and look at a map, you'll see a whole bunch of small little colors. They're very confusing to people. Now, the truth of the matter is, this was good for the world. Uh, what, what do they say? Pisa Roshaim Noilahem Vinoila Olam. Kibbutz at Sadikim is Noilahem Vinoila Olam. Pisa Roshaim is Noilahem Vinoila Olam. The problem is when, when Germany was disunited, enlightened Germans will agree with what I'm saying. When Germany was disunited, then it was good because they didn't get together and try to rule the world. Once they got united under Bismarck, then they were a formidable power and then caused World War I and World War II. Now, um, he lived through the time when Germany was transformed by Bismarck, the leader of Prussia, from a collection of little states into one empire, which was like a federal state. Now, uh, this was done by Bismarck through a series of very successful short wars, the War of 1864 against Denmark, and the War of 1866 against Austria, and the War of 1870 and 71 against France. You don't have to know all this, but basically, Bismarck is a Prussia. Prussians perfected the system of short, sharp war. It has to be short, has to be sharp, like a blitzkrieg type thing, and then, it, then it's over. Um, this became seductive, and that's why in the 20th century, Germany thought they were getting these short, sharp wars, and it didn't turn out like that, and then they didn't win at World War I and World War II. I gave a whole series of this, like I say, in the summer. If you go on the YouTube thing, maybe you'll see it there. Um, the lectures. Now, uh, but in the 19th century, it worked. And so, the result was an intensification of German patriotism, like to Meshuggah in a degree, because they won. They won the 64 war, they won the 66 war, and they won the 73 war, the 70 war. And the 70 war was all the German states united against France, which they crushed the French. So it was literally the 180 degrees the opposite of Napoleon. Napoleon used to bust the Germans every time, again and again and again. Right? Napoleon captured Berlin. Now it's the other way around. Bismarck captured Paris, you see? And he imposed a harsh peace on them, etc., etc. Now the result is a wave of intense Germanness swept through uh, Germany, but totally understandable. Uh, the result was the creation under the royal family of of Prussia, of the German Empire, what they called the single federal state. Uh, the, you know, songs and patriotism. Now, what's the attitude of the Jew? Here comes the key point. What's the attitude of the Jew? The uh, the Jew wants to be patriotic. Well, do you? Uh, now, I'm raising, now I'm raising serious questions. Right? Do you want to be patriotic? Let's put it this way. Are you a German? Are you a Prussian? Or are you Jewish? Uh, now, you're not anti- but are you swept up with the patriotism of the others? Here is a very complex business, my friends, because the Jews throughout history had lived in Germany, but they didn't feel themselves German, nor were they regarded by the state as German. There were a foreign element living here under uh, tolerance, uh, a greater degree of tolerance, a lesser degree of tolerance, and they're always resented. But in the 1800s, this changed it's a very complex story, but in short, dumb terms, the French conquered and occupied Germany for a while, the beginning of the 1800s under Napoleon. Napoleon, for his own reasons, saw to it that the Jews were given civil rights. The Germans didn't like that and uh, resented it, and uh, but they were forced to by Napoleon. But when Napoleon was kicked out, the German states went back and unfreed the Jews. They de-emancipated the Jews. The Jews uh, were shocked. Uh, 
And for the most part, uh, the Jews said, uh, we don't like this. We don't want to go back to the ghetto. Now, they never went back to the physical ghetto. Before Napoleon, it was a physical ghetto. Afterwards, it was not a physical ghetto. Uh, th that they didn't restore. But they did have all kind of laws um, anti-Jewish. Uh, Bavaria, for example, until the 1840s, had the Familian Gazettes, which means that only one person family is allowed to get married. If you live in the King of Bavaria, heck with you, screw you, you know, you can't get married. And that was the government's way of saying either convert, and then you can get married, which they wouldn't do, uh, for the most part, or leave and go to another country. This is where the American Jews come from, the, the, the wave of the German Jews. A young guy's living in Bavaria in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. He said, what am I, not? I'm going to live in this stupid country, and I can't get married or something like that. Only one member of my family get married. I'll go to America. Problem is, they came to America, and they, you know, then they, they became de-Judaized. But, you know, they came on from, but you totally hear where they're coming from. Now, um, in the course of this, now I have to oversimplify. In the course of this, the Jews uh, really tried to bend over to persuade the Germans to, to restore to them the civil rights that they had for a short time under Napoleon. And for the first time, the Jews lost their own Jewish pride, uh, what I would call Hasidic pride. Jews used to look different, talk different, act different, and had the heck with the Goyim, and now they lost that. Instead, they say, we want to fit in better with the Goyim in order to be able to buttress our case that we should be granted civil rights and my kids shouldn't have all these restrictions against them. Uh, you hear the pressure, and by the way, it took a very firm person to say, no, I want to keep the old system of the of the persecution keep going on. The, the, not Hitler at all, not at all, but the persecution of the discrimination, but at the same time, it encourages us to be Yiddish. Most people wouldn't agree with that. Most people would say, no, I want to have it both ways. I want to have civil rights and complete acceptance of Germany and still be Jewish. If you're same Samson Hirsch, I want to be 100% Orthodox Jew, but at the same time have all the civil rights. Um, if you're another person, you might say, I'm willing to give up part of my Jewishness uh, in order to get civil rights. If you're another person, you say, I'm willing to get up 95% of my Jewishness in order to keep the civil rights, you know. And this is how the reform and the other movements started in the first half of the 1800s in Germany. Like I said, it's a big sogia. And uh, I've spoken about this on other occasions. A lot of this, if you look on the YouTube channel that I have, you see pieces I gave about this long, long ago. It's a very interesting uh, partial, but it is what it is. Here, let me stop this for a second. Now, where was I? I think we're talking about um, the results of the emancipation. In, in a, or the desire of the Jews to receive civil rights. Let's put it that way. Use language that you'll understand. Now, this is a, a, a phenomenon that went on in the first half of the 1800s, actually down to the 1860s. And um, the Germans for a long time did not want to give the Jews any civil rights. That's an understatement. But in the end, they did. Right? That's the whole partial by itself. And this was exactly when our hero was growing up when, when he was in his uh, 20s. This is when the German states finally cracked, and Balkarcham Shalobatavasam, they agreed under various circumstances to give the Jews complete and total civil rights. Bismarck, who was the prime minister of Prussia, who was a real right-wing reactionary, led the way, um, and it happened. So the Jews were amazed, and they thought that the Mashiach is here. Now, the Reformed Jews literally thought the Mashiach is here, and many Orthodox Jews kind of did. And what I mean by that is that the Jews had longed 
to have civil rights, which you and I, I mean, most of the people listening to this are living in America, places like that, and we have complete civil rights here in America, in England, Canada, wherever. Uh, but there were a lot, of, they never did before. And uh, they really yearned for it. And when the German states gave it to them, uh, they thought it doesn't get better than this. And they really persuaded themselves that, including the front, for most of the front, I should say, not all, that uh, now opens a new parsha in Jewish history in which we, in which Esau is no longer son of Yaakov, but Mamish, like Hirsch says in his commentary on the Chumash, you know, in the end, Yaakov and Esau embrace, because that's the story in the Bible. And not with the version that Esau bites Yaakov. They genuinely embrace. There is Chazals like that also. Okay? And so Esau and Yaakov had a bad relationship, but in the end, it was a good relationship. Okay? And uh, uh, this was the prevalent uh, feeling over here. Now, um, and that means that if you were in Germany and you lived during this period, uh, you saw things were great. The Germans, Jews, wanted to bend over backwards to show that they appreciated it and that uh, they're worthy of it and they won't disappoint the Germans and their expectations of it. And they really raised themselves to be, you know, don't cheat a guy, don't be very honest, be very patriotic, uh, you know, don't have Jewish uh, faults. Uh, things like that, and German Jews participated in the German armies during the Bismarck Wars, and there are many famous paintings. What's that guy's name? Oppenheimer, I think. Uh, it's one of my favorite painters. Where uh, maybe you know what I'm talking about, maybe you don't. Of uh, you see, these were so popular once upon a time. Of German Jews, religious Jews, in Prussian uniform, in especially the 1870 war. And they're davening, or having some Jewish religious service, or maybe benching Esterig. And uh, this was so popular in the German community, these paintings, because it's a good combination, you understand? You're patriotic, and at the same time, you're Jewish. Um, and the, anyway, the expectation was that things would get better and better. Now, they knew that there's still some resentment against the Jews, but they said, you know, things are in the right way, on the right derech, and little by little... Maybe a little slower, maybe a little quicker. People get genuinely liberal, okay? And so basically we're talking about you'll get actual social acceptance as a full member of the German nation, even though you're Jewish. This was the deep hope of the German Jews in the, in the, in the German Empire. Now, I want to repeat, they did get complete and total civil rights, and it was respected. From the legal perspective, a Jew from 1871 had... Uh, same legal rights as a guy. Uh, th that's not a small thing, okay? Now, um, here's the thing. Listen closely. Why did the German governments do this? Did they have what we would call today a Thomas Jefferson moment? They became almost liberal? No. Bismarck and those guys were the opposite of that. So why did they do this? Did they say, you know... We've been screwing the Jews over so bad for hundreds of years this time that we, you know, made a kapara for that? No, nothing like that. So why did they do that? So if you analyze it coldly and objectively, it's economics, okay? The Germans, especially Bismarck, they say like this, listen, Germany's now going to be a country. We want it to be a, a leading country, maybe the leading country. In order to do that, we got to be part of the new world economics. The new world economics at that time was called capitalism, Okay in which, I'm not going to explain at length, the old system of the guilds and whatever, the inefficient um, uh, monopolies 
that had been granted by medieval corporations were cast aside and became a jungle of the economics, the capitalism, which means if you can, if you have a pizza shop and I undercut you by a penny, the hell with you, I'll put you out in the street, your family can starve, and that way greater efficiency is found in the system. So uh, Germany basically, like all the advanced countries in Europe, adopted this model, and they wanted to have economic growth, who can blame them, and they wanted to have industrial development, who can blame them, and, and under, starting from Bismarck, they did. And in order to do this, if, if you want to be really economically efficient and a genuine capitalist, you cannot be a racist. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I can't say, for example, if I'm running a company, you know, I don't like black people. And therefore, even though this guy who's black is an excellent salesman, I'm not going to hire him because I don't like black people. Really? Well, guess what? Your competitor will hire him and they'll outsell you and put you out of a business. So what I just described is not a matter of being a liberal, it's being a capitalist. You get it? I don't have time for racism and prejudice because efficiency pushes me in a direction where the only thing that counts is the bottom dollar. Okay, so am I, so therefore I have 10 black, uh, 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 what do you call it, salesmen, let's say. Am I a nice person? I'm a selfish person. But I'm a practical selfish person. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Even though Lamaisa, the effects of what I'm doing is actually very anti-racist. I'm providing jobs and good jobs for members of a racial minority. But it's not because I believe in racial uh, you know, justice and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's what he called the, 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 the capitalist model. So that's what they did to the Jews. We don't like the Jews. We hate the Jews, all the rest of it. But you can't have an environment, a, a successful economy, in which I say this Jewish guy, who may possibly, uh, if, he's, if, he's, if he's left alone and not bothered, may turn out to be a great industrialist and build up a giant industry and employ tens of thousands of Germans and create and contribute materially to the German economy. I can't say, well, I don't like your Jewish because you have a long nose, and therefore I'm not going to let you have this job like they used to be in Germany and not let you live here or, or, or deny you access to economic activity. Uh, the Yates of Harvard of, of, of capitalism pushes me to, to, to say I have to get out of your way and uh, let you do your thing, and I'm not going to have laws that discriminate against you. This is what's referred to as 19th century liberalism. It's not identical with current liberalism. It's the 19th century liberalism, which is actually very money-oriented, very capitalist-oriented. Uh, it grew primarily in England, but it spread all, all over uh, Western Europe. And the idea was what I just said before. You can't have a uh, genuine participation in the modern economy with old-fashioned prejudices. This is how the ideas took off. The reason I'm telling you this is not to give you a history uh, class, but to say that in that environment, the Germans did not lose their racism. They simply, you know, bit the bullet. You know, stand, they held their nose and bit the bullet. And it was a good move from the economic perspective because the German Jews were able to uh, have their hands unshackled and they were able to jump in with both feet in the German economy and they made, you know, substantial contributions to the growth of the German economy. A German economy took off starting the 1870s and afterwards and eventually became the number one economy in Europe uh, and probably still is till to this day, till today, till 2020. Uh, it became the economic powerhouse and engine of Europe and Germany developed unbelievable industries and exports and this and that and the other and, and uh, what do you call it, high tech. Germany was in the 19th and early 20th century the headquarters of the high tech. Uh, and Jews played a major role in all this. Just to give you one name, Rathenau, 
they built up the General Electric, the original General Electric. Uh, imagine what that is, you know. But also in the petrochemical industry, there's books and books on this kind of business, okay. But it, it did not mean that they actually liked the Jews. And Germany, in the Kaiser's time, 1870 to the First World War, still continued to be ruled primarily by the aristocrats, who very cleverly, you know, gamed the system. So you had a kind of a democracy, but with a, it gamed in the favor of the aristocracy. It's too complicated to explain to an audience like this. They had the plural voting system in Prussia and things like that. You don't need to know that. So uh, this was the weird environment. So the upper class uh, didn't like Jews and didn't want to be around Jews, except for business. You understand? On the other hand, when you have an open environment, like I say, some of the richest people could be Jewish. Now, how should I put it? This created a new Metzius. And the new Metzius was that the Jews are now part of the economy and of the culture. Because again, shut them up. A lot of people in Germany resented this. In general, what the Gaim wanted then and now was that the Jews should be consumers of European culture or German culture, but not producers of it. But Jews went into the newspaper business. Some Jews were good writers. Uh, some of the major thinkers uh, were Jewish. The guys in education, he's got, you know, he's got, he's got uh, ideas, and ideas may take off in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, and all of a sudden, the perspective came that Jews got too powerful. He made a mistake giving the Jews civil rights. And therefore, the way you look at it is sort of like a, a uh, upside-down V. That on the first side, moving from the left, the Jews went up to the top, the top being 1870, when they got the civil rights. But then the Jews thought that from now on it's going to continue going up, up, up. And little by little, the Jews will gain full social acceptance and people actually come to like them. And basically, we will be full uh, citizens in Germany. Mamish, mamish, mamish. Now, um, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, there was a reaction against this. This is a very famous part of modern Jewish history. And starting a few years later, there developed anti-Semitic movement. Notice the word I used, anti-Semitism, which is a term that started then in 1870s by Wilhelm Marr, a German guy who didn't like Jews. And now, um, how shall I put it? The uh, movement against the Jews assumed a different form. Uh, pr previously, it was kind of religious, especially in these Christian European states. Now it became secular. Um, the very term anti-Semitism is a racial term. So an anti-Semite is like this. And we know this reached its full development in Hitler. I don't like you because you have racial characteristics. You're Jewish, so therefore you're just disgusting because racially, by your blood, you're going to have these disgusting aspects to you. You're a cancer. You can't help it. So even if you convert, you're still going to bring your Jewish stuff into it. You follow? Uh, it's your, it's your Matthias. And uh, if your Matthias is a cancer, the only one way to get rid of a cancer, <laughs> right? Only one way to get rid of him. Now, everything I'm telling you, we see today in perspective. If I teach a Jewish history course somewhere, or anybody does, just like a basic of modern Jewish history, that the Jews got their emancipation in Western Europe, and then instead of being followed by things getting better and better, there was a reaction against it and development of modern anti-Semitism, which we know reached a crescendo in the 1930s and 40s under Hitler. That's like a basic. And we know that this was a shock to the Jews, 
And uh, it really uh, horrified them because they thought they were getting actual acceptance. I thought from now on you and I are going to be friends. And it turns out you never liked me in the first place. Now, this caused a whole lot of uh, phobias and uh, psychological reactions among Western Jews, especially German Jews. And this is part of the modern Jewish experience. There are a million books and courses on this on this subject. Very interesting subject. Now, let's talk about the from over here. The, in How did the Orthodox Jews react to all the developments I'm just talking about over here? The answer is, by and large, most of them were part of what I just described, the general Jewish attitude that now things are going to get better. And if I can use current te- uh, terminology, Germany's going to be like America. At least America until today. You and I don't know what America will be tomorrow. As part of the Muster Haskell of what I'm talking about. But America up to 2020, right? Or let's be better, America up to the year 2000. So, because uh, in the last 20 years, there's a talk of developing an anti-Semitism here. Now, uh, these German Jews, they really thought that they'll be 100% German. At the same time, also from... Uh, now, really, 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 if you study very closely, Sam Smithville Hirsch, if you read it closely, he, he was aware of this. But... But for Hesia, and as far as the general, what's the right word, uh, uh, image, people like Hirsch seem to personify the proper synthesis of he's a, a, a full German and a full Jew, right? I'll say it again. Really, he wasn't like that. He was more Jewish. But he, this is the public persona. And uh, the Orthodox, in order to compete with the Reform, you know, the Reform always, always were trying to insinuate you know, the Orthodox are illegitimate within German terms. We reform, we're totally German. The Orthodox are not really. And so the Orthodox, as part of those reform Orthodox fights, always had to emphasize, no, 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 we're just as German as you are. Now, uh, one can say, uh, okay, you know, so you are. Uh, however, now comes the real hard questions. Should a Jew be like that? Should a Jew identify mamish, heart and soul, with his country of Gullis, <laughs> you know how I put it? Uh, is this really where you expect to spend the rest of your life? Is this really where you expect your children and grandchildren to be? Uh, you hear where I'm going. In other words, the Avodah of the late 19th century was nationalism, which is more powerful then than it is today, uh, because, because World War I and World War II showed nationalism wasn't that great. By that time... This was the uh, price that seemed to be demanded and was willingly offered by Jews as well as others in the late 19th century because this is the price for getting the civil rights. Not, as I said before, on the basis of Thomas Jeffersonism that all men are created equal as a human being you have right. Not like that, but that you're a full member of the national family, but you've got to demonstrate that you really are. Now, uh, the Frum in public were reluctant to speak about this because the Balabatim wanted to feel this way by and large. And so, you know, they used to make a big deal about the prayer for the Kaiser and they should be very patriotic and, you know, identify as German and all this kind of stuff. If you're Hirsch or of Hildesheimer, you say, yes, we're all very German, all the rest of it. Of course, 100% Medakti build the mitzvahs. And the two are not a tartidisasri. Now, it's a little tricky. How are you going to explain that on the one hand you say in Germany, on the other hand you pray for Mashiach. But if you're a Hirsch, you say something like this. Mashiach is going to be a uh, minashamayim. It'll be a heaven-sent uh, messenger. When that comes, 
you know, the whole world will be mockered that this is something different. And by the way, the guy will also benefit from the Moses Mashiach. So it'll work out fine. But right now we're in Germany. Yeah, right now we're in Germany. Uh, if you're old-fashioned Jew, like our hero, or those circles, what do you mean you're a German? You're not a German, you're a Jew. It's like an Avera to say that I'm a German. Now this was so against the current of thought, even among the Orthodox, that it was like very controversial to say that. If uh, You know, in America, it's a free country. So a person can say, I don't feel like an American, I feel like a Jew. Even here, a person wouldn't feel, you know, wouldn't feel so comfortable talking like that. But America doesn't make so many demands on you in terms of your identity. But it's just interesting. I'm talking about an aspect of living in Gaulus. Okay? And it's an uncomfortable aspect if you think about it in principle terms. And this is the reason why a lot of thoughtful American Jews and Western Jews make Aliyah. They say, I don't want to deal with this. I want to live in a country called Israel, and then I won't have any split between am I this, I'm an Adam, a Jew, I live in Israel, and there's a wholeness to my personality and my whole way of thinking. I mean, you totally get it. If you live in America, or in particular, if you live in national nationalist Germany, late 19th century, that's much more complex. So our hero grew up uh, opposing this, writing about it, uh, which made him very unpopular, and uh, being looked like, like a nut, you understand? Because it meant totally against the whole gang of the way the Orthodox German Jews wanted to be in the 19th century. And uh, and he often dreamt about this, and later he, he, he kind of published his dreams, sort of, and uh, these are the things that made him famous and controversial, now whatever. Now he was a very firm guy, as I said before, and he had a very complex relationship with Samson Rehmfler Hirsch uh, and others. Uh, for example, he was related to W.C. Hoffman, who I never spoke about, but was a very great person. And W.C. Hoffman was a gigantic Talmud Chachman, a big Sadik. And also, he went to college, he went to university, and um, he was teaching in the Hildesheim Seminary. And uh, he was a big gong, and he published important works. W.C. Hoffman had both feet in the modern uh, world. Uh, at the same time as being a, a, a chassid, my, you know, really a from guy. And this very famous episode that in the early 1870s, when everybody was, was young, so our hero would be around 30. So Don C. Hoffman went to college and got his PhD, and he wrote his dissertation on Shmuel, you know, Robin Shmuel, Mar Shmuel, which he calls Shmuel, director of the uh, rabbinical seminary of Nerday. See, he had to use that German-type way of describing things. Yaakov Avina was like, you know what I mean, a a uh, pre president of the University of Shane Baber, you know, that kind of terminology. So anyhow, um, and Dovzi Hoffman was a genuine academic historian. Now, he was a very firm guy. He was a genuine academic historian. If you're an academic historian, and you're writing a PhD, you have to deal with what's out there. Suppose, uh, suppose again, I'm just going to make this up. Suppose a Christian wrote a book about Ramosha Feinstein, which was very good, and I'm writing about Ramosha Feinstein. I have to use it. I can agree with it, I can disagree, I can't ignore it. You follow what I'm saying? Suppose an anti-from guy wrote a book about Moshe Feinstein. If it's good, you got to use it. Again, you can criticize it, you can do this, but you can't ignore it. Not really, enough. if you're doing a, uh, an honest academic effort to get at the truth. Uh, and so, when Hoffman wrote his uh, thesis, which he published in a book in Germany, you always had to publish your dissertation, Mar Shmuel. So, um, it's, I bet you it's online somewhere. So he used... 
and and here he's dealing with questions of Talmudic history, which is an old problematic area. But he uh, W. T. Hoffman emerged as one of the great nineteenth century Wissenschaft historians of Talmudic history, the Tanoim and Amorim. He was like the Frum guy in that chevra, and Yoni is part of a chevra, and so he has to say, you know, Gretz in history said this, I disagree with him, or a Shia Rappaport said that, or Zachariah Frankel, all the non from uh, historians wrote this and that and the other, and he deals with them. Now, uh, our hero, Haile Wexler, who was related to him and was friends with him and knew what a from guy was, is very disturbed. How can you quote a non from person like this? This is not art scroll. He wanted art scroll history. You understand? And that's not who Hoffman was. Hoffman says, I have to write who I think Shmuel was. That came out from, but you have to deal with all the different opinions out there. And, uh, he was very perturbed by this. I'm trying to show you his personality. Everything I'm saying is Lashem Shemaim. He didn't do anything at all, you know, to uh, diss somebody else. It's not who he was at all, because he was very Zohir about Helchus Lashem Har and all that. He's a very interesting person. I, even though I'm speaking at length, I'm not doing justice to the subject. And he wrote the same story for Hirsch, by the way. And he said, do you agree with this dissertation? Hirsch Taka agreed with him. He said, you know, you're right. I was very disturbed by this. I know Hoffman's an Orthodox guy, but Adraba, the fact that he's a very from guy, and he's a very from guy, and he's using all these non-from, that'll open the door for other from people to start reading the books by Hirsch, and I mean by um, Gretz and and Weiss and all the other people, and they'll make people unfrom. And then the whole uh, private, uh, uh, what should I say, correspondence between Wexler and St. Serville Hirsch about a third party uh, <laughs> who they didn't include in their, in their uh, correspondence as a member of it, but they were speaking about him, but all because they genuinely were perturbed from a from perspective. Now, they didn't publish this, so it wasn't about, you know, getting a scandal, but they were really were bothered with it, and they said that, you know, uh, he should withdraw this book from publication, he should be macabre himself not to publish anything for 10 years, all kinds of things going to W.C. Hoffman. And uh, because they're yakis, and they're very honest, they sent him the correspondence privately, and W.C. Hoffman was all, like, shocked. Um, and uh, he sent the other big rub on him, and they said it's okay, no problem. And uh, he was a Talmud of Hildesheim. Hildesheim said definitely no problem. Don't worry about these guys. And uh, you know the whole thing was sort of like suppressed until Hoffman's son-in-law, uh, Alexander Marx, who was the later uh, the librarian at the conservative place in New York, he wrote about it in his memoirs in the 1940s. Uh, and by the way, and this is the point I want to get across. They were friends. Now, Rizal C. Hoffman understood his brother-in-law is a real Framach, but all totally L'Shem Shalom, there's nothing personal in this whatsoever. And they stayed in good relationship. Uh, Hirsch, same thing for Hirsch, was not so pushy. Him and Rizal C. Hoffman had a, 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 a strange relationship. But, you know, such things can happen. And as his career unfolded, we also, Rizal C. Hoffman turned out to be a very big person, a big defender of the uh, Orthodox position. I'm just trying to show you who Eileen Wexler was. Now, as the 1870s unfolded, he said that, you know, this modern orthodoxy, now, it's not modern orthodox like today. He's talking about from Hirsch and Hildesheimer. You understand? Uh, this modern orthodoxy is a problem because, yes, they do keep the mitzvahs, no question about it. And they do believe in term Sinai, and no, no, no question about it. And Ralph Hirsch is a great man, right? maybe the, the, the greatest, and Hildesheimer. However, uh, they're too modern, and they're too accepting of Germanists, 
and his opinion, they were too much into accepting European norms in terms of men and women, because, you know, they used to shake hands with women and things like that. And uh, he felt this is just going too far. And uh, that put him as an oddball in the current trend of Germanists, German Jewry, because Hirsch and Hillsheim were the charismatic leaders, and they were, and they were building up the Yiddishkeit, the Orthodox Judaism, as best they could in a very impressive way. And here's somebody saying that what you're doing is all flawed. And the particular flaw is your German patriotism. Now, you have to understand, from the Orthodox perspective, they always had to say, Orthodox Jews are just as patriotic as the Reformed Jews. We're just as legitimate as the others. On the contrary, you'll have no way of making an inroad among the non-from, especially the college youth, if there's perception that being from is, is a, 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 in contrast to being a German. You've got to show there's possibly both. You know what I'm saying? The whole Matthias of Hirsch, for example, was people say, look, he's a modern guy. He knows uh, modern culture totally. He speaks an excellent German. He's fully acculturated. And yet, he's medactic but mistress to the Kihuze, you know, down to the finest point. Okay? I remember Hirsch and the others, they, they made the women have a shaitel. You know, they, they really went all the way. So, uh, and here's somebody saying the whole approach is flawed. <clears throat> now, listen very closely. I told you before that the Germans gave the Jews civil rights but didn't like it. And in the ruling circles, like, you know, the Bismarck circles, they really didn't like Jews, but they realized that they have to bite the bullet. There's an excellent book about Bleichroder, Gershon Bleichroder, who was the personal banker of Bismarck. He was a Jewish guy, not from. Uh, and he was, like I said before, like a core Jew. He was, he was Bismarck's money manager. And um, Bleichroder was with Bismarck during the... Uh, the, the famous uh, military campaign of 1870-71, when the Germans smashed the French and uh, marched through Paris and imposed this heavy uh, defeat on, on, on France. And uh, Bleichwitter was very much part and parcel of this. And so he was in the inner circle of Bismarck and the Prussian generals, all the rest of it. And this is the moment when they're giving the Jews the civil rights. And he was like shocked at the anti-Semitism he saw in the inner circles. You see what I'm saying? Uh, although he didn't uh, tell anybody about it. And uh, what it means is like this. A smart person would say, listen, Germany, for its own reasons, is treating the Jews well. We have to understand, you know, what's happening over here, and we'll take the good, but not sacrifice to dreams that we think now they really like us. They don't like us. What we have now is better than it was before. We have civil rights. And Adra, but you can be more Jewish, if you follow what I'm saying. Use the freedom in, in a Jewish way. But don't fall for the pipe dream that now Esau is going to kiss Yaakov. Because that ain't going to happen. But it did happen. And uh, our hero, because he never bought into the thing in the first place, had an angle of vision that other people didn't have. It's, it's kind of funny. The Jew in Western literature is always called a marginal intellectual because he's never exactly part of the society. And this gives him an angle of vision to see things that the regular people don't see and, and make revolutionary insights. Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, Alex, uh, what's his name, Einstein, and people like that are famous for that. Here you have this from a from angle. Here's a German Jew who never felt himself mamish to be German, although he grew up and lived all his life in Bavaria, in Germany, and he knew German well and even was educated and so on and so forth. But he is not basically a Yid, you understand? He's not a German. Legally he is, of course, but... 
if you talk about culture and how he feels, he's, he's a Jewish and uh, he has no feelings toward Germany other than the pragmatic type. Now, as I said before, what happened in the case of Germany was that the Jews got the civil rights and then the other side of the V. And then situations started to go down because the Germans had a second thoughts and they said, you know, we made a mistake giving the Jews civil rights. And there started a movement in the Kaiser Germany to take back the civil rights, to withdraw them, uh, which was a powerful movement. It never succeeded. And the reason it never succeeded because Bismarck and the leaders, the Kaisers, didn't want to go in that direction. So from a perspective of hindsight, it never worked. But there started an anti-Semitic party. That was the name of the political party that won seats in the parliament and a whole anti-Semitic culture and literature. And like we would say today, websites, you know, the equivalent of that. And this shocked the German Jews because they yearned for social acceptance. They wanted that the society should like the Jews. We want you to like us, not only begrudgingly give us the civil rights, and the Germans can never like them. And all I can tell you is, instead of having an attitude to hell with you, who gives a damn what you think, the Jews really thought, they cared a lot, they gave a damn. And uh, this produced all kind of mental uh, you know, traumas or whatever. It's a whole separate uh, subject. Now, there began, because there was a stock market crash in the 1870s, there began a big movement in Germany, led by Stocker, led by the, a, a big shot at court, the, the emperor's uh, personal uh, priest, you know, personal Protestant minister, the chaplain, to do what I just said, which is to un-civil rights the Jews. And to, to the shock of many people, a lot of professors, intellectuals, and others all jumped on board. So it wasn't some marginal movement of some boobs and some hillbillies. Uh, elite members of society said this, and they developed a whole philosophy of what we call modern anti-Semitism, which is the Jews are just a problem. They're not really part of us. It's a cancer. You know, this one says it's a cancer for this reason. That one says it's a cancer for that reason. The Jews are bad news. This bothered the Jews to no end. Now, I repeat, Lamaisa, it never produced anything in the sense that the German government under the Kaiser, um, you know, did not uh, implement the taking away of the civil rights. But you never knew it. And so the Jews live with a nightmare all the time. And it's funny, it's, it's what Achana Am called Avdus Beto Cheres. You got your Cheres, but now you really feel like an Evan. And uh, the 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 uh, position of our hero was uh, that, uh, he, and, and I'll say it again, you know, he was a strange guy, but he had a clarity of vision that we see in hindsight, but was resented at that time. And he and he had these dreams and things like this, which he describes, uh, and he, he said something amazing, which was, you know, What's developing now is a new form of anti-Semitism and it's going to result in Hitler. And the Jews better get the hell out of Germany now and move to Eretz Yisrael. And listen closely. One of the manifest And the Jews are not reacting to the challenge in the right way. Now you're going to be surprised what I'm about to tell you. What was the big thing in Germany after the Jews got civil rights? The answer is the Hirsch-Pirud split. It was exactly after 1870... The same thing for Hirsch said that there has to be a breakup of the Jewish community because the reform have taken over and the Orthodox have to officially separate and break themselves and declare themselves part of a different Messias. Because otherwise, Hirsch argued, you're like saying the reform is also a form of Judaism, which it is not. That's the heart of it. 
a similar to Austrian Gemeinde, which they did at the same time in Hungary. So in other words, it's, it's not enough to say, for example, as we do in America, there's one kind of broad Jewish community, more or less, and, uh, you know, some are Orthodox, some are Reformed, some are Conservative. Obviously, the Orthodox believe in the Torah and the others don't. But rather, you have to say that we have to take positive steps to disassociate yourself legally from the others and completely diss them in the ideological sense in order to indicate that they're totally trafe. Now, I get it, and you get it, and that's more or less what's happened, more or less. But that was a Hirsch thing in Frankfurt. In other places, like Würzburg, as I told you before, that's not how the Orthodox played it. There, under the Würzburg Rav and, and the Rosenbaum and the others, they said they were able, unlike in Frankfurt, to maneuver things in such a way that the Frum should have like the official top position, even if the people under them are not Shomer Shabbos, you know, and, and don't believe in God and all the rest of it. No, they're able to have some kind of combined Jewish community. From a totally traditionalist perspective, the Hirsch thing was wrong. Meaning, you're not supposed to break up the Jewish community. Now, Hirsch would say, did I, what I just said is wrong. Now it's a radically new Messias, and it calls for a new a strategy. And, to be perfectly honest, what Hirsch did has more or less been what the firm have done for the last 200 years, 150 years. Uh, I live in Baltimore, for example, where there's no Mamish Jewish community in the sense of an organized, legal Jewish community. But, in point of Lemaistic effect, uh, the Orthodox community doesn't have really anything to do with the other parts of the community. I mean, you know, you see them, you smile, you say hello, and so on and so forth. But um, my neighbors, or used to be neighbors, or people I see who are, who are Jewish, uh, but are completely secular or reform or whatever it is. I, mean, I don't have nothing to do with them, not really. So de facto, we live like a kind of a Hershey, in, kind of a Hershey in existence. On the other hand, not exactly. I don't say, I don't go around saying, you guys are trade for all the rest. I, mean, I can think that, but you don't implement that. You, you understand? Uh, I hope I'm making myself clear. And so, uh, you, you, from our hero's perspective, you have two bad things happening. A, you know, the Goyim gave the Jews civil rights, and the Jews are reacting by identifying with the Goyim as Germans and not as Jews. And B, the Jews are, as a totso of that, possibly, you might say, from a, the Jews are reacting to this by breaking up among themselves. Breaking up among themselves. And that's the Hirsch thing. Now, this is very controversial. But on the other hand, our hero was a person living in Würzburg, or near Würzburg. And he was a chassid, if I can use that term, of the Würzburger Rope. I'm sure many of you know that uh, this was a gigantic fight among the firm in the middle of the 1870s, where Sam Sarenfield Hirsch said that uh, it's required, halachically, for the Jews to resign from the official Jewish Kehillah and start their own separate Orthodox Jewish Kehillah. It's required by halacha. And some of the old Frankfurt families who were there before Hirsch ever showed up, they said, no, we don't agree with that. And if the Reform are willing to stop bothering us and make concessions uh, towards the Orthodox, we should all remain within one large Jewish, official, legal Jewish community with full accommodations being made by the official Jewish community for all the Orthodox needs. And the Reformed Jews, who had been very disgusting until the 1870s, uh, once Hirsch got a law passed in the German parliament, the Prussian parliament, that allowed, in 1876, that allowed Jews to secede 
and resigned from the official Jewish community and started a totally separate Jewish community, the Reform freaked because they didn't want the Orthodox to start their own community because it would make the Reform community look like uh, phonies, which they were. And all of a sudden, these guys who had been so anal beforehand now all of a sudden completely changed, and they say, we'll make whatever concessions you want to stay within the Kehillah. We'll, we'll fund you, to use modern terminology, we'll fund your schools, we'll fund your yeshivas, etc., etc., etc. Now, I want to tell you something. In America, for example, uh, suppose, again, I'm making this up, suppose the New York Federation said, yes, we'll fully pay for all the day schools and yeshivas. We'll, we'll fully pay the whole thing. But you think that the, the, the Orthodox was to see? They'll take the money in a, in a second. If you're Sam Strand for Hirsch, you say, I'll be principal, and Hirsch was a yaki, you know, he's made a principal. You don't take a penny from them. We'll raise the money among ourselves. Uh, now, you know, there's, there's a smart to each. But the new reality was that the official kill was willing to make all these big concessions towards the Orthodox. At that point, um, the this is a famous story as part of the controversial Hirsch biography. And uh, at that point, many members of the Orthodox shul, of Hirsch's shul, said, we don't want to officially resign from the Kehillah as long as they're willing to make the necessary concessions, we can all stay in one thing. And Hirsch said, no, you're all wrong. I'll be in. You have to listen to me. And they appealed to the Würzburger Rav. The people disagreed with Hirsch and the Würzburger Rav backed the people, not Hirsch. And this led to the whole Hirsch uh, the Bamberger uh, controversy. Uh, Rav Bamberger was the Würzburger Rav, which is in volume five or volume six, I guess volume six of the collected writings. You know, the uh, if you get the collected writings of Hirsch, um, they have like the whole correspondence uh, back and forth between him and the Würzburger Rav, which got a little bit ugly, you know, but nevertheless, there. And mind you, both of these people were great people, really. And both of these people were big tzaddikim, and both of them were totally shame shamayim. They just strongly disagreed in this po- point of view. <laughs> Obviously, the Würzburger Rav was coming from the perspective, because he wasn't in favor of reform, the perspective that the Jews should all be uh, achdus. You understand? As much achdus as possible. I repeat, as much achdus as possible. Not more than possible, but as much after as possible. And Hirsch was saying that, uh, you know, the radically new circumstances of people who mamish deny the Torah requires a different response. So, you know, who's right? Who's wrong? Nobody can, you know, uh, possibly on a thing like this. Modern history has gone in both ways. But our hero, who super from, sided with Rabbi Bamberger, which is interesting, but of course, he was from that Hevra. And obviously, he was against the reform. It goes without saying. I mean, super... But he saw in a broad, Claudius Yisrael type way that this period is very bad. And so here's somebody in the 1870s, at the height of the Germanness, and with the rise of the anti-Semitism of the new form, the racial anti-Semitism, which says that Jews are just having their blood, that they're a cancer to society. That's who they are. He called it. He said, this is something new. This is not the old Christian anti-Semitism. And therefore, it's much more dangerous. Yeah, he said in the form, he said, I had dreams and God told me this. That made him sound like a nut. And Hirsch kind of said, you know, this is like nuts. Nobody today has dreams of that uh, uh, variety. And Hirsch quoted the Gemara, you know, which is true in a based in case. Okay? The Gemara has a famous story where a guy had a dream and he said, you know, his grandfather came and said, I left a pot of gold or something like that in Plony's backyard. You dig here, move, you know, Five feet to the right, six feet to the left, and dig down, and you'll find it. And kachava. And so, how did anybody know that unless it was true? You get it? If me, me, Dava Katz, if I had a dream that there was a pot of gold that my grandfather left me under 
my neighbor's yard, and I went and dug there, uh, and it turned out I was there. It must be true, because how would I possibly know that? So the money must be my grandfather's what he left for me. Wrong. If it's a neighbor's yard, it belongs to the neighbor. And see, that's the Hirsch approach. Whereas our hero said like this, Chalomus uh, count, uh, I'm not a Navi, but I have a angle of, I have my opinion, and although he didn't use these terms, he says, I have a, I think I'm interpreting the, the reality correctly. And he said, this new anti-Semitism is something different. And I'll explain best as I can in a nutshell where he's coming from. And it's, it's kind of funny. In the old days, you used to have traditional anti-Semitism in Europe. But this anti-Semitism manifested itself in religious discrimination, a certain amount of persecution, making Jews live in ghettos, denying them access to uh, the economy, requiring high taxes, you know, all kind of stuff like that. Now listen closely, that was a safety valve. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's a safety valve. If the guy hates you, then the fact that the laws in society are against you, that actually allows the guy to say, okay, the Jews are bad news, but we're manifesting it by erecting proper legal safeguards. So, for example, in the old days, it was unthinkable that a Jew should contribute to European culture. A Jew kept himself, by law was supposed to keep to himself. Uh, the Jews didn't speak German, and the Germans didn't want the Jews to speak German. And until the Christians create an entire secular, uh, uh, entire European culture, very Christian in nature, all the rest of it, and the Jews are just living there, uh, like a perfect storm. And the Jews created their own separate little culture in the in, in the ghettos, uh, you know, like that. So the fact that the Jews have to wear special clothes or maybe have to wear a yellow star, these are things which is a safety valve. It allows Asaph to say, I'm busting Yaakov, and therefore I don't have to go after him. I'm busting him already. I'm already uh, causing him a tsar. It's, it's a funny way of thinking, right? But the very fact that there were all these discriminatory laws was ultimately, from a Hitler perspective, meant there would be no Hitler. You follow? Nobody's going to have to kill all the Jews because we already are showing you know, what we think about them. The problem is, when political developments proceed in the direction that the Jews get complete and total civil rights, so you can no longer do that, so how is Aesop supposed to express his hatred towards Yaakov? Can't do it anymore. But the hatred is there, and it builds up. And different, it assumes a different form, and if I can't go and uh, de-emancipate you, I'm going to kill you. This our hero saw this. In 1870, was the rise of modern anti-Semitism. He said, this is different than the old Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, and it's going to end up in an extermination. Now, uh, this is quite a vision to see. The German Jews did not want to hear this. Hirsch and the others did not want to hear this. Okay? They thought that he's a nut. And because what he's saying was so um, at variance with what they wanted to think was the future, which was going to be a liberal future. Now, you and I today, looking back... Everybody said he was a prophet. So you go and never read anything but Haile Wexler. He said he was a weirdo, but a prophet. Uh, and Mom was a prophet. He would say, I'm not a prophet. I'm just, I see, if, if, if I can use the expression, I have Das Torah. He would never use that word. I have Das Torah, meaning my Yiddish upbringing and my whole very Jewish way of existence allows me to interpret contemporary events with a clear eye. With a clear eye. You know, I read once, the, the Kleisenberger Rebbe, I think it was, when he was in concentration camp, only ate kosher. 
you know. Now, ah, you can eat treif, uh in, in, in Auschwitz and such places, right? Uh, and you eat whatever you eat because you're starving to death. My father was there, he did it. And the Kleisen Bergen, he told his own chassin to be treif, but he wouldn't. I think he ate a, a, a raw potato or something like that. And they said, why are you doing this? I'll be then you can eat. And he said, yes, but I'm afraid it'll be metam to miss a leif. And in the concentration game, every day is a, a tremendous, you know, a question of life and death. And I have to interpret, you know, what I'm seeing through a clear, uh, you know, a clear vision, clear, cold analysis. And if I, if I eat trade, I won't be able to do that. There's something along those lines that I have in mind. And so as a result, he saw that the modern anti-Semitism started in Romania, which is true. The Romanian government, that's this whole partial by itself, but Romania, when it became a state in the 1870s, adopted anti-Semitic legislation. It spread eventually the, the anti-Semitic propaganda to uh, Germany and went elsewhere. And the result is that what you and I know, a movement started which culminated in Hitler. Now, nobody could see this uh, in the 1870s and 1880s. No, I'm wrong. He could. <laughs> you see? He could. And the trouble is that... Uh, when he uh, wrote about this privately to Sam Smith Herschel, the rest of Herschel, I guess, every column is low mile, no reading, and a person shouldn't, you know, just because you had dreams that this is going to happen doesn't mean that's true. And you shouldn't even publish this because it'll be a negative. And he published it anyway, but not widely. And uh, that's what I mean when I say they became a very controversial figure uh, because what he said was, uh, was uh, what's the right word? You know, not what people wanted to hear. Now, what he basically said was uh, that, first of all, people are feeling too German. Number two, the new anti-Semitism is going to culminate in, in, in extermination and a final solution. Number three, the Jews are doing the opposite of what they're supposed to do. They're splitting among themselves between the Orthodox and the Reformer and all the rest of it. They shouldn't do that. He obviously was looking at a, at a Würzburg model in which it was possible to have all the elements in the community you know, under certain circumstances, you know, provided the concessions were made to the from. Uh, this itself was an attack on, on uh, Hirsch. It was known that he held this way, and uh, the battle between, the argument, I should say, between Rav Hirsch and the Würzburger Rav was in 1877, 1878, I think. And then Bamberger died, the Würzburger Rav died in the middle of it. Uh, he was an old man, he died in the middle of it. And uh, meanwhile, the, those Frankfurters who disagreed with Hirsch and were from, and like I said before, they were from the old from who were there before she ever showed up as a rabbi of the community. Uh, they didn't agree with Hirsch, and what they did was they started their own kahila. Meaning, they said, if the reform are willing to make these concessions, we want to be part of the regular kahila. We want our are dead to be buried in the ancestral cemetery. Uh, if they're willing to fund the Vatikashos, I repeat, to pay the expense of Vatikashos, that we're willing to go, that's good. You know, if they're willing to, to fund uh, a day school, which they were, and a yeshiva, even, even a yeshiva, I repeat again, a yeshiva in Frankfurt, and Hirsch didn't have a yeshiva, uh, and so they knew it. They did, no, the reform did it to stick it to Hirsch. So, uh, you know, then we, we agree with it. And this was a tremendous period among the Orthodox. I think many of you know this, and if you read the Art Scroll book about Hirsch, you can see it, you know, who was it? Very few people actually seceded and did what Hirsch wanted. It was a big disappointment to Rav Hirsch, because he had a big community, built up to 350 families in his time, I think, 
And uh, a lot of them simply, and he preached from the pulpit for the last 10 years of his life. It's a chov, kaddish, and halach, should we see that everybody has to go and register in court and say that you secede from the community and you start a separate community, and they wouldn't do it. Very small number of people did it. Um, and although most of them still stayed in his shul, but many started a separate kahila. So I don't know if you know this or not, I think some people do. There were two from communities in Frankfurt down to Hitler's time A and B. One was the Irish community, the other one was what you call the Gemeinde Orthodox, you know, the, the, the ones who were in the regular kahila. Uh, and they offered our hero to be the rabbi. Those reforms said like this, you know, if you come be the rabbi over here, we'll, we'll bankroll you, you know, up to the wazoo. And, uh, you know, you can have your own yeshiva and all the rest of it. Now, he wouldn't do it against Hirsch. You see? He was too from a guy. He said, I wouldn't do that. So they got someone else. They got Mordechai Horowitz, and who made a yeshiva, and was a big Talmud Chacham, and then this created tremendous bitterness among the from. So everything I'm talking about is is pirud, 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 that there was tremendous divisive politics among the Jews in Germany from then on to Hitler. And from the perspective of our hero, the pirud itself is like the biggest problem. Now, the Frum would say like this, this is a pirud based on principle, which it was. And you can totally hear, you know what I'm saying? Which it was. And there is a certain nobility to saying like this, we'll pay for our own, this is a Hirsch thing, we'll pay for our own JCC, pay for our own TA, pay for our own Beis Yaakov, pay for our own, uh, you know, mikvah and all the rest of it, and we'll, we'll, we'll take it out of our own pocket. Of course, he had millionaires in his show, so he could do that, but he did. The Rothschild was the president of the show. But uh, the other way is to say, no, there should be one mikvah for everybody, and how we work out with the reform conversions, you know, I don't know, but there should be one mikvah for the whole killing. You know, it's a different uh, perspective. And uh, different, there was a great deal of bitterness, even though you wouldn't take the job, but there was a great deal of bitterness between the two. Uh, when he published a pamphlet with his, uh, he wrote, he said, a public warning to the Jewish people that, that Hitler was coming. I mean, you know, words to that effect. Uh, Hirsch said, I guess, do not publish this. And this will just give uh, uh, weapons to the reform and it'll give the anti Semites the weapons against us. See, the Jews don't really uh, feel uh, like German. And our hero said, I guess, I, but this is what it is. This is happening. And Hirsch didn't see it that way. Uh, by the way, they also had, this is also an interesting little piece. There was a very interesting correspondence between our hero and Sansa Avil Hirsch over the Agatha. You can look this up. I don't know if it, if it, one of the most interesting things that Hirsch has is an essay on Agatha. It's been translated in English uh, and Hebrew, in which he said, that the medrash is not to be taken literally necessarily. I mean, I agree. Not every medrash is literally Mycenae, that God said this Mycenae. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, sometimes you'll find a I'm talking medrash agatha especially. So he says, when you find an agatha or something like that, some of it is possibly traced back to Moshe Mycenae. It really is. But, but some not. And uh, it would reflect what this Tana or this Amora or this person or that person said at that time. Uh, under those circumstances, under the Romans, under this, whatever. Uh, to our hero, that was like heresy. So this is funny. Here's a guy saying, Hirsch isn't from enough. He said that, you know, every Agatha is literally Mycenae. The God said over this Agatha to the Even though it involves something that happened later on. And Hirsch said, that's crazy. And uh, he had a lot of... So here you have two from people, very from. 
Rav Hershon, I have to tell you, and our hero also, I have to tell you, very from people. Always the same Shemayim. They didn't agree on things, right? Just because you're from doesn't mean you all see things the same way, even on fundamentals of Yiddishkeit, which is very, very interesting. And that is the way, how should I put it? That's the way um, these things develop. Now, as I said, uh, Haile Wexler spent his career in the small Chinuch situations. A little yeshiva here, a preparatory school over there, like an elementary school over here, something of a high school over there. That's who he was. And no one would know anything about him if not for the fact that he published this um, pamphlet, is what it really was, which didn't go anywhere. When he says a warning to the people and he told about the dreams that he had and all the rest of it, about his, his own uh, self-revelatory business, you know, how he was crazy over this girl and eventually married her, you know, it seemed like strange. And uh, history is full of such things. But time, when, and he died of tuberculosis at the age of 51, time proved that he was a prophet. That's the funny part. Because, listen closely, he said the following, a Hitler is coming. Therefore, all the Jews of Germany now in 1880, when things are good, and you can get away with this, and you have money, move to Eretz Israel, move to Palestine, and set up a modern economy there, you know, with agriculture, whatever it is, like, like a Zionism before Zionism. And this guy's not a Zionist in the Herzl sense, obviously. You know, he's from, but he's practical. He's a yucky, you know, he's practical. There is the money out there. We have the know-how. We're Western Jews. We know how to, how to make this work. And the Germans should, should move to Eretz Israel. And all the Jews should get together and cooperate. This is what God wants of us. And by creating the modern anti-Semitic movement in Germany and in Europe, God is telling us, Hey, Jews of Europe, get out of Gaulish and get out of Europe. This is not working out. You're, you're no longer feeling like you're in Gaulish. And I wanted you, if you're in Gaulish, only if you feel like you're in Gaulish. So since that's not working, go move to Eretz Yisrael. And Mashiach will take care of itself. You know what I'm saying? Mashiach will take care of itself. And you guys should concentrate on, um, on, on your Jewishness and your Jewish nationalism in the Torah sense. The Torah sense. The Achdus and all the rest of it. And that way you will duck a bullet. And we, it's, it's nothing, in other words, and the freaky part is it turned out to be that way. Because uh, whoever went to Israel, you know, survived, wasn't there by Hitler. Uh, so here you have a case where Geschichte is Gerichte, as the Germans say. You know, the history is the judge. Uh, was he a nut? No. What he said turned out to be actually true. So was he a prophet in the sense of being a Navi? He said like this, God speaks to people in dreams. Uh, to, meaning to you and I, today in 2020. Uh, I don't know how your relationship is, you the listener out there, but if you have a dream, especially if it's something portentous, is this, let me put it this way, is it not from God? Does anything happen in your life which is not from God? Or is God there all the time, just you don't realize it? It's a tricky business, and what's interesting is his kids, who survived, moved to Israel and became breast lovers. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Breast lovers are exactly like that. Like, you're talking to God all the time, and God is talking to you. And a very firm person says, I don't stub my foot unless Hashem is telling me a message. Uh, now, you have to be honest and try to interpret the message. In his case, he called it like he saw it. The trouble with a lot of people is that they'll, they'll call it in a way that's convenient for them. So this is something that's very interesting now that we're in the corona era. Why is this happening? You see? What's shot? Uh, it would be interesting if a guy like him was around now and would try to interpret the corona. 
he wouldn't necessarily be politically correct, would he? And uh, it's too easy to say, it's because talking in shul, or I don't know, whatever it is. You understand? In other words, it's too easy to say the fault is what you are doing. It has to be a fault of what we are doing. Okay, so he problematizes, and with this I conclude because I've used up too much time as it is. He problematizes uh, the Jew living in Chutzlarts. Okay? Of which I'm one. Uh, you understand? No, it's, do you feel like you're in Gulfs? And uh, are you going to Israel? And, uh, you know, when? And those kind of questions. And uh, he made people in his time feel uncomfortable about it. But on the other hand, he foresaw in an uncanny way <coughs> what took place. Oh, I don't know. Well, he died in 1894. So uh, he's only 40 years before Hitler came to power. Is it? Oh, that's all. 40 years Hitler came to power. Uh, so he's very interesting in this regard. Uh, but I see I've spoken way too long. So I wish you a good moed. And that uh, Sam Finkel's uh, grandmother, I guess, the Shem Shanavanaliyam. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.